Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Attila Pentec. Uh, I'm the VP Exploration of Wabbage Mining. And today on the call, I also have, uh, we have Frank Demers here with us, who's the VP Mining and, and Projects. And we're going we're gonna to dive a little bit into the technical details of, of uh, what Wabbage is about. Uh, in the last three years, we've been going through an amazing discovery story at our flagship uh, Fenelon project. Uh, we're exploring on the Dieter Fenelon Gold Trend, which is in, in, in the northern Abitibi. Uh, we drilled about 300,000 meters in the last three years, and, and that resulted in, in, a, in a milestone achievement of putting out our, our main resource estimate in, in November uh, of Fenelon, and we're continuing exploring from, from there on. Uh, increasing the resources. Uh, this year, we're drilling about 150, 160,000 meters. Uh, we've got nine to 10 drill rigs turning and uh, majority focuses on, on expanding the resources, plus making new discoveries on, on this belt. We own about close to 100 kilometers of that uh, very prospective underexplored belt, which is in the Northern Epitubi in Quebec, which of course is a, is, is a great jurisdiction. And it hasn't seen as much exploration as the southern portion of the of the Abitibi. Great, Attila, thank you so much. Um, really good introduction. Um, <clears throat> Frank, nice to have you on the call as well. Um, I'm I'm completely new to Warbridge Mining. I, I before I was lined up for this interview, I uh, I, I knew nothing about it. Um, I see that it's a you know it's a it's a relatively uh, new company, a relatively fresh discovery. Can I just ask before we get into kind of what your um, roots were into the company and how long you've been with it. And perhaps uh, let's start with you, Attila, and then we can go on to Frank. Yeah, so I, I've been uh, with Warbridge for a very long time. So I, I, uh, I started off with a master's thesis, then PhD, which was supported by Warbridge. And then in 2010, when I finished the PhD, that's when I started full time with Warbridge. So it's been quite a long time ago. And, and you know, it's been it's been great to see uh, you know really sort of organically growing the company and 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 acquiring Fenelon and then sort of building a, building a team. And we've got a pretty big uh, team now. And, and I've, I've taken over the uh, VP exploration position uh, end of 2017 or early 2018. And then since then, you know, it's been a very exciting time for, for, for a while. So you, hang on, when did you, you were at university and you, uh, you had a summer um, a, a placement, is that right? Or kind of a, a... Well, it was, it was basically, I'm originally from Hungary. Uh, based on my name, you can you can probably tell that I yeah. <laughs> I'm not originally from from Canada. Yeah, I, I was at, at university in Hungary, and there was a, an amazing uh, opportunity came up that I can do a, a PhD study here in, 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 in Sudbury, sort of a collaboration between the, uh, universities. And um, and yeah, Walbridge was always very supportive of of uh, research projects, academic projects, good industry academia collaborations, and uh, that's how I. I originally came to Canada in 2005, and then um, yeah, so it's it's been it's been a good ride since then. Wow, amazing! I, I did some um, I, I did a uh, part of the International Mining Students Week. Uh, I don't know if with the Royal School of Mines, and there were some crazy Hungarians on that trip. We went around Slovenia, had a <laughs> had a had a good time back in. Um, um, yeah, I'm one of those crazy Hungarians, but I think I I, I mellowed down. A since I moved to Canada. Yeah, well, thank goodness from what I could see from that trip. <laughs> um, sorry, um, Frank, over to you. Um, what was All right. your well, company? All right, I've been with uh, Walbridge since the beginning of the bulk sample in 2018, so I'm going on four years in June. 
Uh, prior to that, I spent uh, a solid 15 or 16 years in the industry. So I've been, I've been about 21 years now in the mining industry. I started my career with uh, INCO in 2001 as an underground miner and then um, with an engineering degree and then uh, progressed through, uh, through the ranks uh, within INCO, uh, which then became Valet. Uh, basically spent 15 years there through various roles in operations and, uh, and, then, and in engineering and finished my career there uh, as a mine manager uh, responsible for the Creighton mine uh, for the last four years of my career. In uh, 2016, I moved on from Valet over to KGHM as the general manager of operations in Sudbury, where I had responsibility for all of the uh, operational aspects of, uh, of KGHM uh, International in, uh, in Sudbury. So I had uh, three, three, uh, three plants, basically one in operation, a second one in operation by the time I left, uh, and uh, two others in care and maintenance. So it was, it was basically, uh, you know, a, a role where I had full responsibility for everything from HR, finance, IT, operations, maintenance, and so on, as well as any commercial agreements that we would have had with, uh, with neighboring companies. So it was quite an interesting role. And, um, you know, my journey into Wallbridge was basically, uh, I, I knew that they had a, an, inter, an interesting project in Quebec. And uh, I was really looking to learn more, uh, get away from base metals and learn more about the gold industry. And so, um, you know, in discussions with Mars, which we had been talking for, for a few years on and off, I just felt, felt that, that it was the right time and, uh, you know, to join the company into, uh, into a really interesting gold project, which has turned out to be fantastic. Isn't it interesting that um, as you, you started off with your kind of deep specialization, you know, 15 years and then mine management kind of going right down the technical kind of that, that, uh, that technical kind of career path. And yet in a few years time, like so many of us, you end up uh, with a varied role managing people people managing different processes across different um, silos. It's, it's an extraordinary way, way that at the end of the day, so much is about people management and about kind of making teams operate efficiently. Absolutely. The most important part of my job is about relationships and, uh, and, and people. I mean, and nothing happens without the people and without the relationships. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit later, but um, you know, a lot of the work I'm doing is, is on the social side and uh, making sure that we're building relationships with our stakeholders. So um, yeah, that's, that's probably the most important part of my job. We used to, we used to joke about people coming out of big companies and having to have the kind of the chip removed from the back of the head um, because you're kind of slightly robotic. And I know it's a disservice because I've got lots of friends who work in big companies and they're not at all like that. But um, I think that the, the, you know, in that humor, there was something about the cultural shift, which is needed to adapt in a, in a smaller company and be more flexible. Can you just talk a little bit about how that culture, you know, how you coped with the, with the change in that kind of going from a super big company? Yeah, absolutely. Structure? So, yeah, so I, I've always been uh, somebody who's very focused on continuous improvement and trying to do things better and better every time. And so, you know, the larger the organization, sometimes the, the, the more difficult it can be to make that shift. It happens, but it takes a lot of focus and effort and it takes engagement from a lot of people to do it. But when you get into a bit smaller company, um, you know, continuous improvement is is something that's needed for survival, and it's uh, and it's something that's also very easy to make happen when you've only got a handful of people reporting to you or working with you. And so, mm-hmm. mobilizing workforce or mobilizing people to get things done is quite easy. 
And so you've got that flexibility. You've got the ability to make change very quickly. Um, and, and, you know, you just go ahead and do that and you make sure that you bring people along at the same time. Um, the, you know, the, I can say the great thing of working for a big company, though, is that you, you bring with you uh, some structure. Thank you. Both of you, it's really interesting getting the, 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 the different backgrounds. Um, <clears throat> Shiv, um, have a look at any maps. Um, as I understand it, kind of the Abitibi, you've got these kind of roughly east-west kind of granite greenstone belts. Yep. And the, 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 the detour Fenelon trend is the northernmost trend. It's presumably much less explored, presumably um, much more difficult to work in terms of uh, climate. Um, but I don't know anything about um, glacial till cover or anything else about it. Kind of, can you just give yeah. a, a little in introduction to that kind of belt as a whole? For sure. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of the listeners would, would obviously be familiar with the, you know, the world-class mining camps in the southern Abitibi, Timmins, Kirkland Lake, Ruan, Valdor, all those, all those camps that have been mined for, for over 100 years. And, you know, uh, basically those, those were discovered by, by prospectors. The mineralization was right on surface. Uh, it was all exposed, so you could just follow up on, you know, from there, there on. Now we're in the northern Abitibi, which is which is all covered in uh, with glacial till. So, like you mentioned as well, uh, basically on our land package, probably around average 25, 30 meters of, of till cover. Now, in some areas that goes up to to almost 100 meters, and we're f we have maybe a handful of, of of outcrops on the entire 100 kilometer uh, yeah. land package, right? So, you know, as a geologist, you can probably appreciate how difficult it is to I mean, just even interpret geology and, and having a basic idea of, of what we got. So a lot of it, obviously, you know, that, therefore prospectors didn't have any chance to find anything here. So it was all uh, basically wetlands and, and muskeg. And um, so exploration only started in the 80s, 90s, when, you know, airborne geophysics started to be more, uh, more commonly be applied. And then, you know, people followed up with diamond drilling and, this um, whole area was sort of a VMS camp in the past. I was, I was just about yeah. to say, because the 80s exploration, Naranda, Inco, looking for exactly, VMSs. Yeah, um, yeah so, so because, because metagamy was found in the 50s, and then there's a, there's a mine called Selby Mine, which is another VMS deposit, so copper, zinc, you know, silver deposit uh, nearby. The whole area was explored for, for massive sulfide deposits. And I mean, as you know, uh, um, exploring for those is very different from exploring for gold. So you're basically, you're just looking for, um, you know, large conductors, uh, mag anomalies, those mm -hmm. kind of things. And then, yeah. and then you, you know, and then you drill them. And, and if you don't find the right sulfides, then you move on. And so actually a lot of the holes weren't even sampled for gold or if they sampled for gold, often it wasn't followed up because as you know, a lot of the previous large co corporate uh, cultures, uh, you know, you were very focused on certain commodities, right? So we're just looking yeah. for copper, zinc, uh, don't worry about gold. So that's why, and Fanlon was one of these uh, original, uh, you know, the original Fanlon showing was found in the mid nineties. It was by a VMS company, uh, you know, drilling an drilling a EM anomaly and, and, and hitting some gold mineralization. And what was the what was the the gold hit that was ignored? Was it kind of fifty meters at 0.5 grams or something? Or 
Oh no! Like if one wasn't actually ignored because it was it was high grade enough that that uh, you know it tweaked people's interest and and over the years they sort of you know drilled off very tightly a, a small area about a 200 meters by by 200 meter box uh, what was really closely drilled and you know I mean some of some of you know there has been some promotion going on on that and there's some spectacular high grade uh, mineralization. Um, but there was other, other hits on the belt that, that haven't been really properly followed up because, uh, yeah, like you say, I mean, if somebody hits, I don't know, five meters of two grams or something like that, it wouldn't have to tweak maybe their interest, but now it's something that you would follow take up. seriously and follow up. Right. Yeah. And, um, the, the, the nickel, you, you've got a nickel deposit in the portfolio. Was that yeah. discovered in that, in that VMS phase? Was that part of no, that? No, it was actually more recently. And, and I mean, that's the, that's the fun or you know, beauty of exploring undercover is that you, you can stumble on, on all kinds of different unexpected things that you, that you didn't even look for. So like VMS companies were looking for copper zinc and they stumbled on gold. And, and this was almost the reverse. It was, it was uh, Balmoral Resources, which was a gold-focused company. And they, uh, they started drilling this ultramafic rock suddenly. And, and, and they decided, well, let's, let's, let's assay for nickel and PGs as well. And, and sure enough, they realized that there's some pretty good nickel content. So then they got a little bit distracted. Or, you know, they, they started drawing off the, the nickel deposit. So that's how that story came about and yeah there's a nice uh, about five and a half million tons now of i forget the exact grade but around yeah one, one and a half percent nickel equivalent uh approximately That's not 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 bad many juniors could get started on something like that um <clears throat> um so so coming back to your trend and the glacial till and your the tools that you've got available to you are you, yeah. um do you use um this ionic leach kind of soil um, um, technique the SGS has, or the the Bleg analysis, or are you very much driven by uh, geophysics? Uh, yeah, so I mean, right now, I guess with the Fenelon discovery in the last three years, we've been uh, fortunate enough or, or spoiled that we had constantly mineralization to step out on, and it's been just in the last year that we really started. Uh, figuring out where else to go on the belt and, and what else might be out there and how do yeah how do you prioritize areas within that almost had a clear land package right and um yeah i mean there's already three known large gold systems so we have the detour lake well not we have but the detour lake mine is on the ontario side of course now owned by uh Nico and um you know one of, one of canada's largest gold mines and then there's there's Fenlon, which we now know is is, is a pretty significant you know multi million ounce deposit. We're trying to turn it into a tier one you know asset, and, and it's about 75, 80 kilometers away from Detour. And then halfway between that, there's Martinier, which is also shaping up to be a really nice large gold system. So you know, the, obviously, the first thing to do is is try to find satellite deposits around those uh, existing you know around Fenlon and Martinier. So we're doing a lot of, uh, uh, yeah, so magnetics has helped us a lot. And we've flown some really detailed uh, UAV or you know, drone-based magnetics, which they're flying closer to the ground and, and closer line spacing. So you're getting much better resolution and magnetics. So that has helped us a lot at Fanlon to 
keep stepping out on the right hole strokes, trying to identify the structures that that might be gold bearing or that are part of the gold story. Do you so have did, do, do you have a handle on the um the the relationship between structure, the magnetics, and the mineralization? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think we've we're, we're getting a really good good uh, handle on that, and you know, testament of that is is, is I guess that um, a couple of the the new projects that we went to, one of them is is the Grisset, and then the other one is Casso, which are near the existing deposits. Basically, you know, from interpreting from from the airborne magnetics, uh, we were able to go into very grassroots areas and and uh, right away hit with diamond drilling uh, structures that are gold bearing. So we so we were able to identify the, the right type of orientation, right type of structures. Now, of course, he's you know, that's, it's still not a discovery because you have to properly drill it off and see where the economic deposit is, but at least we know which, which structures are gold bearing, but it's, it's still being figured out. So there's, there's a PhD study, there's several MSC studies that we're supporting because just like the exploration is, is really far behind and uh, in comparison to the Southern Aditibi, the research understanding is also very far behind. So we don't have all the age days, the stratigraphy, the structural framework for the whole area isn't isn't all that well developed yet like it, it would be in Valdor, for example, right? So we're, we're doing a lot of work with the geological survey and 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 universities to, to get a really good understanding of the geology there. When I look at your 3D model, it seems to be... Um... Uh, it seems as if it's got some good thicknesses on, and in Mars, in previous convers- in previous videos, has mentioned that the kind of the mineralizing uh, widths are anything between five and twenty meters across. Um, <clears throat> can you just kind of describe to me, um, you know, are these purely shear hosted? Are they preferably in sediments? Are they preferably in volcanics? Um, you know, uh, are you getting stacked zones? What is that? Is that a lithological feature or a tectonic feature? You know, what's the can you just describe a little bit more about the kind of the um, intra-deposit, yeah. intra-deposit geology? Yeah, so I guess as a, as a, as a, as a basic, uh, when you get into Fenelon, it looks like an orogenic gold deposit. Uh, there's a lot of shearing going on, lots of ductile deformation. Um, but then as we're starting to understand it more and more, we're, we're, we believe that there was sort of a precursor of intrusion-related gold system probably. Um, you know, a lot of that is still still being developed, but yeah. So the idea is that there w- would have been probably so. There's a there's a rock called Jeremy diorite, which is a you know sort of a massive intrusion, a diuretic uh, rock, which is one of our main host rocks. And when that got in place, probably that brought in already uh, a lot of the fluids and a lot of the gold. So there was some gold mineralization associated to that, and then. And then the orogenic processes, which which formed orogenic gold deposits, and which which are, you know, developing along the Sunday Lake deformation zone, which is our main break there. Similar to in the south, you have Destro Porcupine or the Lauder Lake Cadillac deformation zones. In our case, it's the Sunday Lake deformation zone, and associated to that, there's these secondary structures, uh, which often those are the ones you know really controlling the gold mineralization. Yeah, they they come off of the and uh, so one of these structures is the Jeremy Fault, which, which seems to have brought in a lot of the fluids and, and it's sort of roughly parallel to the Sunday deformation zone. So, yeah, so we have this 
really nice host rock, which is the diorite. And then there's another host rock called main gabbro, which is a, a gabroic sill. So these are more competent intrusive rocks. So fracture more, they fra fracture yeah. more brittly, they create more space and that's where the exactly. pressure, pressure drops and you get the precipitation yeah. out. Yeah. So do, 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 do you have a, do you have, just sorry, do you have a map or a, um, can you, can you bring any of this up? I think it'd be really useful yeah, just to get, to get uh, this in. Um, okay. Yeah. So this is the 3D model of, of, of the Fenelon, you know, geology, uh, which is in Verify actually, uh, if people want to, this is, this is a really cool uh, website where, you know, you can play around with the, with the data that we have here. There's a lot of layers that can be turned on and off and all that. So this gray gray here is the at the bottom there. That's the Sunday Lake deformation zone. And you can actually bring up here the, the magnetics. Oh, um, what do you call it? Do you call it the Sunday League or the Sunday Lake? Sunday Lake. Lake, sorry. It's Sunday yeah, Lake. Okay. Yeah. So you can see here from the... Uh, this is the magnetics. This is that drone mag I was talking about. And yeah, yeah. you can see the, the Sunday deformation zone. It really shows up as a very strong mag low there at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the main host rocks that, that we need to remember are, are the Jeremy diorite, which is this brown shape here. Yeah. And, um, you know, right now the, the, the shape of it is just very much restricted by where we have drilled it. Uh, but one uh, cool thing is that that it, it really corresponds very well to uh, this sort of a magnetic load of the green. Uh, if you can see there, uh, the green, maybe I should toggle it on and off. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you can see that sort of the gray green uh, shape of the uh, um, uh, of the magnetics uh, maps it really well. So based on that, now we know from 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 geologic maps that it continues uh, in the north. So I can doodle that on here, but uh, you know, from the model on, it, it would sort of continue up, up, up northwest that way. But we yeah. believe that you know, based on the magnetics, that could there could be other uh, fingers of it or other other parts of that diorite over here in the west where we haven't really drilled yet. So, um, so this is really our main host rock, and and uh, not just host rock, but it's also you know, it's sort of a regional control on on the fluids, you know, bringing in the, the fluids and then. Into, and then, into the, into the fractured gabbro. Sorry, well, the fractured diorite, the fractured yeah, diorite. Frac yeah, inside diorite. Now I should bring up here, there's also the, the Jeremy fault so, that I mentioned. But, but, sorry, this sorry, sorry. So you're effectively saying that, that it's, it's the, 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 the Jeremy diorite is both the source of the, fluids as well as being a good host for the mineralization both yeah so so you know there's already some evidence coming out from fluid inclusions and age dates and things like that uh you know, the, the base metal contents and, and things like that that indicate to us that the diorite already was uh mineralized what it got in, in, in place now yeah. we shouldn't get into all the uh, ambiguities of, of was there a you know subduction in the archean and you know how how that all worked, but people, you know, there's there's a group of scientists that think, you know, similar to porphyry deposits, you would have these intrusion-related uh, deposits in the Archean. So yeah, so yeah. that's that's what would would have originally been the mineralization, and then and then when the orogenic orogenic process happened, that's when the Sunday deformation zone happened, and and the Jeremy fault, which is this other shape now that I brought up, yeah, and and th those brought in a lot of the fluids, caused deformation, and 
and uh, distributed it, you know, brought in probably more gold and distributed it, 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 it further. And so that's where the other host rock comes in, which is this, this blue shape, which is the uh, uh, main gabbro, we call it. It's sort mm-hmm. of a silk complex. So there's a lot of these gabbros and gabbros and peroxinites sort of uh, mineralized there. And if you can see th- this little shape here, that's the original gabbros most. So when we inherited the project, uh, that's all that was there. Uh, that's that 200 meters by 200 meters that I mentioned. Uh, yeah, everybody was mainly focusing on, and then, and then it was really in in early 2019 when we drilled the hole uh, uh, 51, which was sort of drilling from the north towards the south, and and that's when we got into uh, you know, a couple hundred meters of of this totally new rock type, totally new types of type of mineralization, and that's when we discovered. Uh, you know what we call now the the area fifty one, which is which is what's inside the diorite, which is really these this vein network. So because, like you said, the diorite breaks up really brittly, um, you you get this network of of veins developed inside the and diorite. Are they parallel to that second fault? Um, sorry, I've forgotten the name of that of the Jeremy uh, the fault. Jeremy, Jeremy fault. Yeah, it's it's a combination. So because the fluids came in, it sort of. It deposited a lot of the mineralization along the diorite, which is the these these shear zones we call Tabasco Cayenne, uh, along the diorite contact, and then okay. a lot of the fluids a lot of the fluids came in into the diorite itself, and 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 caused you know mineralization sort of parallel to the Jeremy fault, and then also sort of in in this orientation this northeast southwest orientation which we call you know that's the area fifty one orientation sort of. Uh, going northeast southwest but so basically you've got a a very active hydrothermal system which is well mineralized and um, when you when you look at your kind of some of your longer intersections is, or actually could you spin it around so we can almost look kind of end on to that fault kind of if you put it horizontal and then just yes yeah, so I, I can step here so i can do a well here's a cross section yeah there we go you can see that. So yeah, now I'm showing a little bit uh, different things. So now I'm showing the here's the these are all the grade shells about above one and a half gram per ton. Okay, so that's that's so that's, that's really nice. That's that's a really nice view there. And it, is it um is it quite evenly distributed, or does a lot of grade hang on narrow structures, or do you get kind of um how can you spot it downhole? I mean, is it disseminated? Can you see the alteration? Can you see the um, sulfide veinings? Yeah. So, so what has been really nice with Fenelon that it's it's uh, maybe I should bring. I don't know if I bring back the diorite if it's going to be a bit too messy. No, I think it still still works probably. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I mean the the way we've drilled this deposit is is uh, you know we drill from south to north because that gives us a pretty good um um these are the drill holes here so we've been doing a, a grid from south to north that gives us a good compromise between the two uh structural orientations if you if you remember i was talking about the mm-hmm. so these are the, the the tabasco cayenne zones are going like this the uh area 51 zones are sort of going like that so drilling to the north gives you a pretty good uh, uh comp you know intersection of both and um, so what has been nice with, uh, uh, with the drilling pattern is basically 
you're almost entirely in mineralized uh, it, it, within the mineralized em envelope. So, you know, we're drilling uh, all these holes that are sort of you know, 800 meters or kilometer deep holes and 70 or 80% of it is, is in areas where we can expect mineralization or there's a possibility of, of, of mineralization. So it's been really nice going in and out of these zones and basically drilling off this, this area 51, which, which again is, is, is this stuff in, inside the diorite as well as, as the, the Tabasco Cayenne, which is, uh, you know, along the diorite, you can drill that off uh, at the same time uh, with the same holes. And then, yeah, so I answered the question. Do your geologists know when they're logging it, do they know that they're in mineral because they can, do, so do they know that they're in yeah. grading stuff because they can yeah, see? Yeah, and so within the diorite, yeah, when we intersect the Area 51 veins, those are, pre-recognizable, pre, uh, uh, you know, sort of gray, smoky quartz veins. Uh, there's usually quite a bit of sulfides associated with it. So there's some chalcopyrite, molybdenite, and, and a lot of uh, visible gold specks usually in these veins. And, you know, the veins are, aren't very thick. They're, they're a few centimeters, maybe 10 centimeters in thickness, but they're, they're, they're uh, frequent enough that, you know, when you have a 50-meter wide zone or 30-meter wide zone, there's a lot of these veins running parallel to each other and, and, and giving you a nice overall grade of, of anywhere between a, a gram to two grams sort of, sort of uh, a grade. And we've actually seen that now when we went underground uh, earlier this year, about a month ago or three weeks ago, we had a press release on, on our underground development that we, that we did and we drifted into Area 51. And it was really nice to see you know, all these veins and, and everything underground all the alteration package over a 30 meter width uh, lining up really well with what we expected from the drill holes. So, so yeah, when you go through the diorite, you always know when you're in the zones and, 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 you know, what is going to be mineralized. And then when you get into the Tabasco Cayenne zones, those are very, uh, very visual. So those are usually, uh, you know, a few meters to tens of meter wide, really, uh, ductile deformed, lots of shearing, lots of uh, mm -hmm. uh, sericide alteration, silicification, uh, again, lots of sulfides and, and, and uh, visible gold. So you know exactly when you're in the, in the mineralization. Right. Now, Attila, I'm conscious of time ticking by, and I've been asking too many detailed geological questions, mm -hmm. which, which interest me, but perhaps... Um, it, you know, it helps me get a picture of what's what's going on. But um, let's let's zoom out a bit. Um, yeah. And you mentioned the word envelope to the mineralization. You said you're pretty much within the envelope of the, to the mineralization. Now, mm -hmm. one of the things that I always uh, advocate junior exploration companies to do is to understand their their resource and to kind of to put an envelope around their mineralized. You know, th th there's a, there comes a point when it gets harder to find the new ounces because the mineralizing system is kind of dying away. Mm -hmm. um, can you kind of describe how close you are to that process? You know, have you found the edges of this thing? And I know you've got some plunging shoots going down at depth, but uh, just kind of talk to me where you feel that you are in the kind of the, that, the process of defining the envelope of mineralization around Fenelon. Yeah, that's that's really the question. So um, basically, I mean, you can see on this image here the 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 open pit shell that was that was done in the twenty twenty one resource estimate, which you know is really just a snapshot in time. That's at the time that was the 
pit, you know, that they could push down economically to, to a certain depth. Um, but it was really constrained by where, where we've drilled. And you can see all the resources are basically inside the pit or underneath the pit in the underground uh, portion. But you can see a lot of intersections uh, outside of that. So, um, you know, if you look at the scale bar uh, or, or color scale, you know, I should say, um, the yellow is everything above 0.35 to one and a half. So that's sort of the open pit mineable type mineralization. And then and there's the higher grades in red and, 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 and purple. So, so you can see um, basically the, the known part of the Jeremy diorite is, is continuously mineralized. But we, we just didn't have enough uh, uh, drilling down here in the south. So if I if I draw, so, you know, from the edge of the pit to the to the Sunday Lake deformation zone, this is about a one kilometer uh, distance where we know this diorite occurs and there is good mineralization in it. We just didn't have enough drill holes. So um, originally, the property boundary when we acquired Fenlon was actually uh, much smaller. It was only like um, uh, I don't know, something like this. And so the southern portion used to uh, belong to Balmoral before we made the acquisition of Balmoral. So there was much less drilling in, in the south. And there's this area here we call uh, Ripley uh, zone down here. And that's an area, for, uh, for example, that we're very excited about uh, because, you know, it's very close to the Sunday Lake deformation zone. It's sort of hugging the northern Part of it, which is a similar, you know, geologic setting like the Detroit Lake Mine on the Ontario side, and there is some already some some pretty respectable intersections there. Uh, I mean, just last week we announced um, uh, about two hundred over two hundred meters of of 0 0.5, 0, uh, yeah, 0.5 gram per ton, which you know, it just it's 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 probably borderline economic. Yeah, those depths, it's probably not economic yet. But it tells us that there's really a lot of fluids moving through it. It's, it's a very pervasively mineralized uh, system down there. So now we're looking to, to bring that closer to the surface, find the higher grade portions within that that will be, that will be economic. So a lot of our drilling uh, you know, this year is focusing on you know, filling in this southern portion here, the Ripley yep. zone, you know, drilling that properly off, making that uh, hopefully all part of the resource. And then also here in the southwest, so I was mentioning these Area 51 zones kind of going towards the southwest. At depth and, or at uh, surface? Uh, this is all still surface. So this is, there's a lot of lateral expansion potential. So we haven't really found this, the, the edges of the system laterally. So that's a lot of, of the focus that we're going to do this year. So again, last week's press release had a few nice intersections here in the southwest kind of pushing things. And then also here towards the northwest, where this, you know the Jeremy Fault continues along the, uh, the, the Jeremy Diorite contact there. So those are some of the areas where we where we really see good expansion potential laterally. Once you get up up here to the northwest, um, well a little bit a little bit further away, you're probably too far inside the diorite. Uh, you're you're too far away from the contact, too far away from the faults. Uh, yep. That is probably not as, as well mineralized, so we're trying to stick closer to the contacts and uh, where the diorite is. So that's sort of the immediate resource expansion laterally, and then and 
So just to yeah. ask, is that going to be about half of your um, exp- uh, half? You mentioned 150,000, 160,000 meters of drilling this year. Is that going to be um, how are you going to d- yeah. d- divide divide that? Let's I mean divide it into quarters. How much infill work are you going to do? How much is going to kind of yeah. go around so the edges? Basically, uh, you know, out of the 160,000 meters, we devoted about 60% of that to, to Fenelon. So say 100, 110,000 meters to, to Fenelon. And um, a bit of that will be probably 20, 30,000 meters. You know, it depends a little bit on the, on the result. A lot of it is result driven, right? So, um, so 20, 30,000 yeah, of the meters will probably be inside the known uh, footprint. You can see there's, there's large parts uh, uh, of the pit that already have mineralization, but they're not part of the resource because again, yeah. there wasn't enough uh, drilling at the time to make it part of the resource estimate. So we just got to do a little bit more drilling in there uh, to hit, have enough spacing that we can move that into the into the inferred or indicated resource category. Yeah. Uh, but what's nice about the initial resource is that it already 60% of it was in the indicated category. So we don't yeah. have to do a lot of uh, you know, tedious, uh, 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 you know, infill drilling where we have to convert a lot of inferred to indicated. So we have sort of that benefit that we can we can go and expand. So a lot of the drilling that we will be doing is expansion drilling and, and exploration drilling. So 20, 30% is inside the known footprint. I still wouldn't call it really infill drilling because it's not, no. it's not no, like you're it's... upgrading in, inferred to indicated. You're still adding new resources is just in the known footprint, right? It's, it's de-risked exploration, that is. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So you already know that there's some mineralization. You just have to uh, keep prove, you know, prove it up, have enough drill spacing so that it can be part of the resource. And then about 80,000 meters will be the expansion drilling, which is like I was mentioning, you know, the, the areas down in the south and the, in, the, in the west, northwest. Uh, so sort of those areas where we can laterally expand it a lot. Uh, and then, you know, the rest of the drilling uh, will be on other projects like the Martinier, which which uh, we haven't really talked about yet. But maybe I'll, I'll just mention quickly the depth, because probably people wonder also about the, the depth extent. So you know, this is a long section here, looking at it from the side towards the, the northeast. And basically, the drilling is down to a, a kilometer so far. And, uh, you know, we have one drill hole that's, that's much deeper than that. It goes down to about a kilometer and a half. And it, it intersected the same kind of rocks, the same kind of gold mineralization. Um, so we know that, that in the future with more, you know, drilling at depth, if, if, if we continue drilling in those areas, we, we, we should see good, you know, resource expansion uh, at depth. Uh, but it's not really going to be much of our focus this year because, like I mentioned, there's so much potential uh, laterally to to uh, to add to the resource, um, you know, sort of in the shallower uh, depth, both of the underground and the open pit resource. That there's no reason right now for us to really go much uh, much deeper than a than a kilometer at, at this time. And orogenic uh, gold mineralization is. Um relatively well known for continuing at depth so it's, that's yeah that's good, yeah, good to have in, good to have yeah. in the background good to have in the back pocket um yeah i'm i'm conscious of time moving on really swiftly this um 
what a what a great mineralizing system. I mean, this this is a really superb um, project. Could you perhaps drop the um, drop the verify now? Um, yeah. And let's go. Let's go back to the gallery view. Miners always want to get mining. Uh, let's 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 you know you want to start mining right away. But one of the worst things out there is having to change your scope or your spec when you're halfway through the project and you go, oh, why didn't you tell me it was going to be a bit bigger or a bit different? Or, oh, I thought we were doing an underground mine. Actually, we're doing an open pit. Or I thought we were doing an open pit. And what I, I, In the build process, one of the most destructive things in terms of value is changing scope. Absolutely. So I just wondered what your approach is to kind of where the company is in terms of its um, planning and when you're looking at the running the PEA and the project, the kind of wrapping the economics around it. And when you hear a discussion like that on the geology, and Attila is absolutely right, a lot of this is results dependent. You know, I'm not going to hold him to the, not going to hold his toes to the fire and said, oh, but you said you were going to drill all of your meters over here. You know, no, it's, yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah, that's like right. That. So, so obviously, we, we've stated already our, our intent or our approach is to do an economic study or project description when appropriate. You know, we've we've set out that this year we're drilling 150 to 160,000 meters in order to improve the quantity and the quality of the resource. And after that, perhaps sometime in 2023, we'll, we'll conduct an economic study. Um, however, I think it's really important as you state that, you know, we don't uh, get ahead of ourselves either. So, you know, we can slice and dice this many ways. We can look at this project today the way we have the resource and we can actually conduct or, or evaluate an underground operation. You know, we, if, you look at, uh, if you look at the resource the way it is today with 60% indicated, um, you know, we've got uh, about 15 million tons of three and a half grams in, in the indicated category at 1.7 million ounces. And then another just shy of 12 million tons of uh, about three grams per ton for another 1.1 million ounces. Um, and that, that would be looking at things from an underground perspective only at a 1.5 gram cutoff. We would have ourselves a very robust underground operation and we could do a very good economic study on that. However, to your point, we can't get ahead of ourselves too quickly. We have to understand, you know, what is the open pit potential with this uh, project? What is the underground potential? And where's the trade-off or where's the happy trade-off between those two? Uh, and, and we owe it to ourselves and I think to our shareholders to, to really understand the full potential of the system. And when the time is right, we'll decide, you know, how do we advance this and how do we put together a project description? One of the things that we're doing is... We're making sure that regardless of the outcome of the project, we are doing the right studies. We call our no regret decisions. Um, we're, we're, we're carrying out all the studies that are required to support permitting processes and uh, technical studies, or I should say uh, tech, uh, economic evaluations in the future. Um, such as you know environmental baseline studies, a lot of the a lot of the studies that uh, you have to collect two years worth of data for uh, for permitting purposes or or more. Those we've been doing uh, you know since the beginning. We started out in 2018 or in 2019 actually we started doing a lot of the environmental studies and we've continued uh, to collect data, expand the footprint of our of our studies based on our knowledge of the mineralization. We're doing a lot of the geotechnical work, the metallurgical work, 
uh, the hydrogeology, you know, all of the all of the things that you need to do to support a good project description, uh, an environmental uh, environmental impact study. Uh, those things are all happening. In fact, you know, part of our seventy million dollar budget this year, uh, you know, north of three million dollars is on studies and geotechnical and so on and so forth. So, you know, we're not we're not we're not sitting in the sidelines here waiting for the the full resource to be to be complete. We've actually got a small technical studies team assembled, which is conducting all this work uh, in parallel, so that when the time comes, if uh, if you know if we decide that. Uh, that we do have enough information or that we have a proper understanding of uh, the mineralization. We say, Hey, let's move on to an economic study. We won't be caught with our pants down and we'll be, we'll be able to move things uh, ahead fairly quickly. I like, I like the phrase, no regrets decisions. That's a, um, funny enough, I was just, I was just writing an internal document on exactly <laughs> that, that philosophy, that yeah. philosophy, but I, but I didn't articulate it so succinctly. Um, the, yeah. Um, I also, it's good to keep evaluating your options on a kind of, I mean, essentially um, what a senior management team needs to do is, is run trade-off studies the whole time internally and to back it up with numbers. And with, if your team is able to provide those numbers, that's, that's it. That's a good thing. I mean, just while you were talking, um, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you can evaluate an underground operation, but with the work that Attila and the team or the company is doing on the on the exploration. You know, a lot of that focus is on relatively shallow stuff. And if you're getting shallow material in Martiniere and it's only whatever it is, 35, 40 kilometers away. Yeah, 30 um, kilometers. Yeah. 30, 30, 30 kilometers away, you know, you could quite easily potentially recut it as an open pit development. Um, yeah. you know, but you as it, you, you know, that might be a better option, but you won't know that until <laughs> until you've got that resource out or yeah yeah we, we're certainly looking at the martin air deposit as a satellite deposit to fenelon you know um, mars uses the the term hub and spoke uh mm-hmm. um approach and, and i think that that's quite valid you know w- we know today that uh fenelon is our largest resource out of the two um you know the day we decide to progress the construction of fenelon you know most of the capital will be sunk there and um, and and obviously anything at Martinier thereafter is really just complementary. We will not, or or the develop the people developing the project, or you know whoever that is, uh, you wouldn't need to invest all of that upfront capital. Really, all you need is uh, road infrastructure to get to and from Martinier, and uh, it, you know it's only about thirty to forty kilometers away. That's a very reasonable trucking uh, distance. And uh, in the resource statement that we uh, that we published back in November, that's how we looked at it. You know, our cutoff grade was was based on the extra costs for trucking material from Martinier to Fenelon. That would be the assumption. Great. Well, um, gentlemen, thank you so much. I've got a much better understanding now of the of the project and um, kind of the flagship assets and um, the environs. And it's also uh, really refreshing and good to meet you. Both. It's, um, you know, uh, uh, Mars has got a very high profile and it's great hearing him talk about the company, but it's also very nice to meet people uh, uh, to show the, the, the depth in the company. Um, what else? What have I, what have I missed? What, what, what would you feel as if that we haven't covered that perhaps you are itching to share, share with me? Yeah, the, the one thing I would definitely think is worth sharing is our efforts in the ESG front. Um, you know, the company has been very active. Um, 
on the ESG aspect of things over the last several years, but we never really uh, published anything or touted ourselves as as being proactive. And uh, we recently re- released our inaugural sustainability report a few weeks ago, so that's available for people to to, to read if they if they wish. But uh, you know, if I if I was going to go back to that and take a few highlights, um, you know, the relationship building is very important to us. Uh, doing things right is important to us. And so, you know, we, we recognize that we are operating in traditional Indigenous territories, and there are three communities of interest. And uh, we've, you know, we've, we've worked really hard to establish uh, good relationships with all the communities. Um, you know, we're north of 30% Indigenous employment at our site today. Uh, we've got 67 to 70 people uh, from the Indigenous communities that are employed um, you know, directly or indirectly uh, through our exploration projects. So, you know, we, we, we forged very strong relationships with the Indigenous groups and, uh, you know, we, we work to maintain those, provide opportunities, and uh, not only with the Indigenous communities, but also the other surrounding communities. You know, Metagamy, uh, Lasar, Amos, Valdor, Ruin. We work uh, very hard to uh, make sure that we're sourcing all of our supplies from those areas so that all of our expenditure or our spending is local. And so, uh, you know, th- that's just the uh, core of our business and our approach to doing things. Are you, um, are you drilling at the moment? So I'm, I didn't catch on, I didn't catch kind of the, weather, the, 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 the all round status or the weather status um, of the We're project. Drilling around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's one of the beauties of the project as well, that, that you know, we're not up north or, or somewhere where it's seasonal. We, we can drill year round. And so, and we like to keep it sort of consistent at, uh, you know, we sort of gradually ramped up our, our drill programs. Last year it was mainly, you know, six to eight drills. Now we have nine, adding another one. So but we keep that steady the whole year. So that, that allows us to keep the, you know, the core team together. Uh, we're not sort of up and down in terms of, of employment and all that. So we can consistently drill uh, uh, the meters. And um, decent turnaround times. You go. Well, where do your where do your assays get? Um, where do your samples get assayed? Yeah. So, like in everywhere else in the industry, you know, it's been real struggle with with assay turnaround times in the in the last year or two. Uh, obviously, a lot of that is COVID related. Some of it is because of the activity in the industry. But we've actually um, what we did this year is we we signed an exclusive uh, uh, agreement with with uh, one of the assay labs that they have a designated uh, prep facility for us, a preparation facility for us in Valdor. So that lab is entirely devoted to our samples that go, uh, that go there. So that uh, got started around you know, early March. So we're already seeing the, the benefits of that. So instead of the, you know, right now we're, we're sitting at around three months assay turnaround time, uh, but now the assays are starting to come in and, and we're hoping we can reduce that back now to much more, you know, a typical sort of one month or something like that. So that should give us a much better, uh, you know, assay turnaround time, which is very important as, as we said about, the, you know, being um, result driven. You know, we have, we're drilling certain holes. We have to wait for assays and then decide whether it's worth stepping out. So it's very important for us to to have that better turnaround time now. Gents, well, Attila, thank you very much. I guess when you're um, 
you're drilling 150 to 160,000 meters in a year. It gives you a, a certain degree of um, preferred customer state. Yeah, a bit of leverage. <laughs> um, yeah. Nice talking to you both. Uh, good luck with the programs this year. I look forward to seeing how the 150,000 meters of drilling comes. I mean, that's that's that'll certainly pack a punch when it comes to um, exploration results. So good luck with that all. Thank you very Thanks much. Yeah, Thanks for having us. Take care. Okay.